This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. People with disabilities, our lives are shaped by the law in multiple ways. There is legislation preventing discrimination in workplaces, housing, and service delivery. There's also proactive legislation that seeks to eliminate barriers. And you can think about things like the Accessible Canada Act. There is a long history within the disability rights movement of trying to change laws to make them more favorable to people with disabilities, not to mention to observe equality before the law. But with all that said, the fact remains that people with disabilities continue to experience barriers in their daily lives and face discrimination in many forms. So the question begs to be asked, what are the limits to legal reforms? And do we, in addition to engaging in an understanding of the law and its impact on the lives of people with disabilities, also need to undertake a grassroots campaign to try and change the perception of people with disabilities in the court of public opinion? Today, we discuss disability and the law. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Chuita Gupta. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to you about a soon-to-be-published volume which discusses disability and the law in Canada, cases and materials. Now, if you are a law student or thinking about law school or indeed a professor of the law, this is a volume that is going to grab your attention. But what about the rest of us? We are joined by two guests today who are going to break down this book and talk a little bit about why the cases contained within make an, a difference to all of us, regardless of our preceding interest in the law. Laverne Jacobs is a professor and former associate dean at the University of Windsor Faculty of Law. You might remember Laverne from a previous conversation here on the program. And joining Laverne today is another familiar voice on the network. Odelia Bay is a disability activist who's done some very cool things over the course of her life. And right now she is a doctoral student at Osgoode Hall Law School, which is affiliated with the York University in Toronto. Odelia and Laverne Jacobs, welcome to both of you. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us about this book on the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Laverne, let me start with you. I'm going to ask you to make the elevator pitch for the book. Why is a book like this so important? Well, Joyda, a book like this is important for several reasons. I think that uh, historically um, in the law school, just to start there, we have taught and understood and experienced um, information about disability barriers in a very siloed way. So we mm. might have a course on law and disability. Uh, we might have a course on human rights law where some issues of disability arise. This book is important because it breaks down or attempts to break down those silos. So we are providing um, a tool that can be used by professors in many core areas of law. So whether it's constitutional or criminal or employment law, um, students will be able to see um, and learn about disability barriers. And we think that that's, uh, that's really important. It's also a, an important book because it provides information for people who are not in the law. So um, it could be that you are uh, in the field of social work or human resources where you know um, people with disabilities figure prominently. 
this book provides a, you know, a valuable tool to be able to understand some of the legal barriers that exist in those fields as well. Odilia, tell me a little bit about the book. I'm sure you've had a chance to look at your advanced copy. Tell me a little bit about the book and how uh, the book covers various issues. So what are some of the topics that the book delves into? Um, well, it's a cross-section of, of disability issues. So everything from um, income support to uh, my chapter deals with employment law. And I think What's interesting to me also is that, as Laverne said, disability really belongs in every one of the courses, in every facet of law. Um, I've actually joked with colleagues sometimes, you know, explicitly saying, well, sometimes I feel as if it should really be called um, disability law school because so many of the issues overlap and impact with ableism. So that's you know, just to, to reiterate the importance of the book and the, and the, the variety of, of topics that are covered in areas of law. Um, I even remember actually being, when I was a student in tort law and talking about a particular issue where somebody was talking about safety and foreseeability of injury and, I, and I'm putting up my hand and saying, well, what about if, if there's a disability issue? Wouldn't, don't we have to think about that differently? Wouldn't there be mm-hmm. a foreseeable tort in that case? And just silence in the lecture right. hall. Yeah. So all of these instances where disability comes up and it's so unexpected for professors and for students in, in lectures. Odelia, let me just ask you another question. So this is a book of, I'm assuming, selected cases. It's not every case that has ever dealt with disability issues. I think that's self-evident. But how do you decide what makes a case significant? So I guess, put simply, how do you decide what goes in and what gets left out? Mm-hmm. Well, that was, I mean, for me, that was a difficult decision to try and, and figure that out. Um, but when I do my research as well, I think about cases kind of in, in two groups. One are the, the high level cases or the Supreme Court decisions that tell us the way that the law is supposed to be interpreted. Um, and so I've included a couple of decisions from that level on disability. And then the other area that's really interesting and important to look at is how that how those decisions are actually um, interpreted mm. by uh, lower level courts and tribunals. Um, and so I have a labor arbitration decision in there as well. So do they, how, how do they then actually um, view what's been uh, said by the, the higher level courts and the legislation? And then what do they do with that? What's, because that, that's what impacts the majority of people who are before tribunals or arbitrators, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Laverne, how significant would you say this book is? So if I've done some legal research in the past and I can go on to a website like Canlee, which is the Canadian Legal Insti- you know, Inf- Information Institute and look up old cases. So it's not like the cases aren't out there. What would you say historically is the significance of a book like this that looks at the history of disability case law in Canada? Have you ever had anything like this before? So while it is possible for... Um individuals to go onto the internet and to find cases through Canley and other sources. Uh, What's helpful about the book, I think, is that it organizes cases both historically uh, in terms of significance, as Odelia has mentioned, but also in terms of cases that have uh, an impact or an import. So, you know, there are cases that um, might be significant to the type of situation or um, a common situation that you're facing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those types of cases, they kind of form a baseline. I think they're very important cases for people to know if they're going to understand the field more generally. And so I think the, the book is very important um, in that way. So Laverne, you know, one of the things I was really impressed by in going over the book was the roster of contributors that have you, you managed to put together. Not only do you cover a breadth of topics, which we talked about with Odelia, but you have experts from coast to coast across Canada. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of the project. How did it all come together? Yeah, well, I think that uh, a couple of us were teaching courses, uh, seminars that we designed on law and disability. You know, we were in different parts of the country, and uh, we thought that it would be uh, really great to get together and think about some of the key issues and to organize a set of materials that uh, we could use. Our colleagues from other places also contributed uh, in terms of subject matter. So, for example, um, David Ireland and Richard Jockelson uh, have been thinking about criminal law and uh, thinking about disability, uh, the two topics. Uh, for quite some time. They, they happen to be in Manitoba. And so, you know, as a result, we have uh, not only um, a selection of cases, but we also have a selection of cases and materials that touch on places like BC, Ontario, uh, Manitoba, etc. There's really kind of a, a cross-country feel to the book as you read through it. No, it's a very impressive collection, if only because of the breadth of scholarship that's contained in it. Odelia, tell me a little bit about why you feel the book is reader, is needed right now. So why is this the moment to put a book like this out there? I actually think that it's a really exciting and interesting time in terms of uh, disability law in Canada and the way in which people are thinking about disability, but also... Um, perhaps learning from experiences of disablement and and ableism to try and think about how we can actually um, improve law and our social relationship to law more generally. I know that that sounds like a bit of an academic answer, but post-COVID, you know, there was so much that changed so quickly. And and this also following on the heels of the, the Accessible Canada Act you know, the, the, we have to, to look at ways to do better for everybody. And so when we look at what the impacts are for this particular population in terms of criminal law or in terms of discrimination or, um, or specifically within employment, you know, we start to see ways that we can actually, creative ways in which we can do things better or the way that the problems are exacerbated and highlighted even further when they impact certain you know, folks with disabilities. So um, for me, I find that really exciting because I think that this is a way of exploring the law more generally and and how we can improve the way it works. Laverne, just as before we take a break here, I have to ask you, we've used the term disability a lot today, but the term disability has a fraught definition. There's obviously the pervasive medical definition of disability where you get a doctor to sign off to say, yes, your disability is permanent. Yes, it's severe. But you also have people with disabilities putting their own spin on it. We've talked about the social model of disability a lot. So as a starting point for your book, how do you look at disability itself as a concept? Yeah, thanks for the question. We definitely look at disability from a perspective that respects the social model. Um, the social model um, seeing disability as um, 
you know, environmental, architectural, social, economic, other barriers that cause challenges to people who have uh, various impairments, various uh, forms or ways of being. Um, within the book, we talk about the importance of having a disability lens. Um, we talk about the importance of recognizing ableism, so recognizing these barriers and finding ways of avoiding them. So we definitely are we're not anchored in the, the medical model. We focus on, um, you know, the, the social constructs that, that lead to um, the concept of disability. I'm Joita Gupta. My guests today are Laverne Jacobs from the University of Windsor and Odelia Bay from Osgoode Hall Law School at York University in Toronto. They are both contributors to a new book that deals with the relationship of disability and the law, it looks at the interactions between the two, and looks at selected cases in Canada. Really exciting book to be talking about. Laverne Jacobs, tell me a little bit about how much my layperson's perception is off the mark here. When I think about a disability perspective on any issue, my primary sort of thought process is, you know, I'm a person with a disability, maybe I face discrimination in the office, or I have a service dog and I get turned away from a restaurant. Is that the bulk of disability-related law in Canada, where we're just looking at anti-discrimination legislation, or is that just the tip of the iceberg? I think that that is an important aspect, and I think that for many people that is what they see. But at the same time, I think there are other elements as well. So in addition, you know, and there are issues that might be faced in the criminal justice system. So, for example, challenges with um, arrest and detention. There might be broader systemic issues altogether. So it might be that, you know, when you go and you say, oh, I feel as though I've been discriminated against because of the way that uh, I've been treated in the restaurant or my guide dog has been treated, there might be some sort of broader system at play with practice or um, the ways that the laws have been built. So I think that uh, I think that for the most part, people do perceive law as um, something that's affected them. We see things from our own um, our own viewpoint. But I think that by looking uh, kind of uh, more deeply and more across the various instances that occur, we can start to see patterns and, and systems and start to break them down. Mm-hmm. You know, Laverne, one of the, th- yes, I, I would agree with you 100%. Now, the other thing that gets talked about a lot, Laverne, is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which, of course, uh, and I'm asking for a friend, is often the basis for people to make interventions in the law around things like, you know, freedoms and uh, due process in the law. So how does the disability, how do disability issues come into play in our consideration of the of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms? It's such a great question. I think one thing that's important to highlight first, you know, first and foremost, is that um, many discrimination cases don't go all the way through. They don't go all the way through the process. Part of this is because it's very expensive to bring uh, litigation. So sometimes we have uh, we have a myriad of cases, I would say, out there in society, things happening to people that don't even get into the, the legal system. Once they get into the system, sometimes they are dismissed um, at an early stage and this is often because people with uh, disabilities may not have adequate representation. They may not have the evidence that they need, things like that. Yeah, and so the Charter is um, a primary tool for uh, bringing matters against government. Um, but mm-hmm. as I'm saying, because, because of a number of kind of practical realities, there are often situations where we don't see those cases go all the way through. Mm-hmm. 
that makes a lot of sense. Now, let me ask you a little bit about the fact that, you know, we've had so many conversations about the Accessible Canada Act. And of course, many provinces, Ontario, Manitoba, have provincial uh, legislation that's a, a little bit more proactive in nature. Is that fair to say? That tries to eliminate barriers ahead of, you know, these things becoming problems and becoming the root cause of discrimination. To what extent yeah. would you say, Laverne, does the book engage with the citizen in engagement around some of these legislations? Because I remember going to the community consultations around the Accessible Canada Act, and my God, that that room was packed with people. Does the book get into how citizens, ordinary people, have intervened in the law? It's such an important aspect. The book does talk about accessibility legislation, and there is uh, there's a section in uh, the chapter on equality rights instruments that touches on that. Um, it talks more about, it talks a little bit about citizen engagement in terms of the process, but mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, of um, the actual uh, experiences, unfortunately, this isn't, um, this isn't, there isn't enough room. I, I don't know if I can mention that it is something that I'm looking at and will figure mm -hmm. in another book that's coming out. But uh, for this particular book, we talk about accessibility legislation, but we don't report on the experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something for a future project. And I know you're, I, I feel your pain about not having enough room to say all the things we want to say. Odelia, let me bring you back into the conversation. was really excited about your chapters, uh, dealing with an area very close to my heart, which is disability and work. Give us an overview of your chapter and what you were trying to communicate in that. Yeah, well, I, I kind of have a, you know, one foot in, in the world of academia and, and the other also, um, in practice, and so trying to bridge thinking about those things, um, my chapter does bring in some theoretical components in terms of looking at something called crip time and work. So, uh, and also exploring ideas of episodic disability. So, disabilities that are um, not predictable, that that fluctuate, where the impairments may be different from from one day to the next even. And some of that is also informed by, by my own experiences. So, it, and it overlaps also with my, my uh, doctoral research. So looking at how it is that we structure employment and what that means for people who have episodic disabilities and how ideas around crip time, that is the experience of time as it's differently understood and mm -hmm. uh, and lived by, by people with disabilities, how that kind of conflicts and overlaps um, with um, what we understand to be our rules of a functioning workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do that by, you know, grounding it in uh, Canadian law. So here are the, you know, I, I set out the, the, the main cases in terms of accommodation and disability and then look at whether or not we're able to actually think about um, different ways of experiencing time as an accommodation. Mm -hmm. Now, give us a very high level look, if you can, about some of the case law pertaining to crip time and the workplace, episodic disabilities. What have you found? What are your major conclusions? Well, it seems that, again, kind of that looking at what happens at the higher level courts and how it's actually being um, applied um, in at lower level decisions, my sense, and, and from reviewing the work of other academics as well in the area in Canada, is that there has been a tremendous push um, at the Supreme Court level to really elevate the, the needs of 
employers for things like predictability and production and predictab- uh, predictability and production, I should say, which, which can conflict with the needs of individuals. And then at the lower levels where there's opportunity to delve into some of this stuff, it seems as if there is an opportunity or opportunities, I should say, to understand that difference in terms of how we actually experience, I say we, because I identify as a person with a disability as well, um, how we experience time in our needs and whether or not we can make room for that in our accommodation um, and the duty to accommodate up to undue hardship. So I find that really interesting. Does it matter which workers we're talking about? Because you could have workers in a permanent, full-time, unionized job who have a very different uh, relationship with their employers compared to someone who's a freelancer or is working as a temp worker or a contractor. Does it matter which workers we're talking about here in your discussions? In The chapter itself does focus on labor law. So it is Mm -hmm. largely looking at, at folks in a unionized context. And the decision that is exerted there in terms of um, lower level arbitration decision is is a, a university academic context and, and mm-hmm. the unions can be quite quite strong in, in those settings. But the duty to accommodate does apply to everyone in a workplace setting. And, and there, you know, that I think a lot of people talk about flexibility as being important in accommodation, but then you have to start to ask, you know, you're saying, what about people who freelance? And you have to ask flexibility for whom? Is it for the employee or the contractor or for the employer? And, and what does that mean in a world where we seem to be increasingly moving towards the gig economy. The chapter doesn't address that, but there's some very interesting questions to follow up from from this kind of work. Well, don't be surprised if we follow up with you, Adelia. We've just got a few minutes left here, Laverne. You've got a book launch coming up on October the 20th. Tell us a little bit about the book launch, who's going to be speaking, and where can we tune in? I'm assuming it's happening virtually. I'm so excited about this book launch, and yes, it is happening virtually. Um, it's happening on October 20th, and two of the authors who um, are not with us today in this interview will be speaking. They are uh, Ruby Dan from um, Thompson Rivers University and David Ireland from the University of Manitoba. And the topics that they will be covering are access to justice for people with mental health disabilities and addiction, and disability in the criminal justice system. So. Two very, I think, important and uh, topical um, topical uh, uh, topics at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's taking place October 20th from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I do have a link. Perhaps there's a way to circulate it. Absolutely. We can put that on our blog. Well, thank you very much, Laverne Jacobs and Odelia Bay for talking to us today about this exciting book and congratulations. It sounds like it's a really important contribution to legal theory in Canada. We appreciate that you spoke to us today. Thank you so much, Joyda. That was Laverne Jacobs from the University of Windsor and PhD candidate at Osgoode Law School, Odelia Bay, talking about their new book, Disability and the Law in Canada, Cases and Materials. And of course, it is a legal textbook, but you can always tune into that book launch to satiate your curiosity about the book and some of the authors that we did not get to talk to today, but you can hear from during the book launch happening on October 20th. We'll put the link onto our blog, which is ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. 
you missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. That's all the time we have today. I would like to once again thank Laverne Jacobs and Odelia Bay for being my guests on the program. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.